Welcome back to CrimeFiction.fm, where we bring the authors of today's best books directly to you. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and I'm here with Kim Powers, the author of Dig Two Graves, a beautifully crafted thriller that was released on December 4th. Kim, welcome. Thank you so much, Stephen. Happy to be here. It is a, it's a pleasure to chat with you. I really enjoyed this book. So let's, let's get into it by uh, sharing sort of the story of the book with listeners, if you would. Sure, absolutely. Well, it is about a man named Ethan Holt, who in his late 20s had been a big Olympic decathlon hero. He won the gold medal at the Olympics. And um, there was sort of a, a, a tainted element to his winning. He didn't want to, you know, continue trotting out the spandex for the rest of his life. So he sort of fell back to his second love, which was teaching classics and the love of all ancient cultures and Greece and Rome, which is sort of how he got into the Olympics in the very first place. But he teaches classics at a small New England college. Um, his wife has died several years earlier in an automobile accident, so he is single-handedly raising a 12-year-old daughter named Skip. And very quickly, when the book begins, Skip is kidnapped. But it's not by some random crazy person out there who wants a lot of money. Uh, College professors don't have a lot of money. It's by somebody who starts sending him this bizarre series of riddles that he has to figure out. And one by one, it starts dawning on him with with horror almost that what he is being asked to do are perform modern-day versions of the 12 labors of Hercules. And it has a special resonance because his sort of joking nickname during the Olympics was Hercules. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be somebody who really knows every, every heartbeat of his you know, last 20 or 30 years who's, uh, who's getting that our hero, hero Ethan through his teenage daughter. Now, one of the things that one of the first things that popped into my mind when I realized what was going on with the 12 labors of Hercules was how much fun this must be as an author to translate those into modern day thing elements that you can use in a in a thriller like this. Oh my god, it was fantastic. And I I, I can't pass myself off as any sort of um mythology expert or classics expert. I, I was the only nerd in my high school who took four years of Latin, so I know <laughs> a little bit about that stuff. But I was just more sort of a fan, and sort of in the same way, you know, everybody knows the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, people at least know the idea of the 12 labors of Hercules, even if no one could, you know, recite them from memory. But the trick and the fun, as you say, was coming up with modern-day equivalents of them. And a lot of them involve uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, feats of daring-do and adventure, but almost in a prehistoric way with animals and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I was, like, trying to figure out, you know, how we could do that without, you know, killing or hurting animals or something like that. And at one point I had, you know, like a... There's a, a group of birds who attack him, and I turned it into helicopters, and then I thought, oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so I, I tried to keep it as close to the original labors as I could. 
And and uh, and and, and dot com, a rhyming dictionary, uh-huh. was my friend <laughs> because all these riddles rhyme, and I had so much fun just kind of coming up with them. And they're sort of very diabolical and twisty, you know, almost in the way um, kind of clues in the Da Vinci Code are that mm-hmm. would sort of spin him from one labor to the next one. I'm going to go back to something you said earlier. I am sure. so impressed. A that you that you took four years of Latin in high school, and B, that you went to a high school that actually offered four years of Latin. Well, I'm sure they don't anymore. And the strange thing was, you know, I had I had some, you know, pretentious or kind of highfalutin idea that, oh, it would help me with any language that I, you know, mm-hmm. ever wanted to do. And I grew up in a very small town in Texas, and my father couldn't believe I was wasting that time. He thought, oh, why aren't you taking Spanish? You know, at least, you know, learn something useful that you can, can use here. Uh, and I was I I got so intrigued by it and had such a connection with my Latin teacher that I literally was the first student maybe uh, before and since to have taken four years. She literally designed a fourth year <laughs> class for me so I could just keep sort of, you know, studying and translating and sort of doing special projects in that world. That's interesting. And has it has it helped you with anything else in life? Not at all. <laughs> well, at least you finally got to use it, kind of, sort of. I, I, I sort of know amo, amas, ama, you know, uh, the way everybody else does. And there's one uh, little bit of, of uh, Latin poetry from the, the poet Sappho that I remember, Odi et amo, I hate and I love. And I almost thought, well, that pretty much sums up life, you know, those, you know, those two extremes, I hate and I love. And somehow that little phrase has found its way into every book I've ever written. <laughs> but I think that's the only thing I've sort of, you know, retained from those four years. Well, that's, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm not sure that there's anything in high school that I can say has made its way into everything that I've, that I've done. So exactly. uh, th- there's, there's something to be said for that. Now, I, I'm... Let's go back to the the twelve labors of Hercules and your writing process because I I find it so fascinating the way the way you use those. Are you like a, a really hardcore plotter where you you've got the whole thing plotted out before you start writing? I am not, and that's sort of one of the amazing things. You know that this book was such an anomaly in terms of other things I had written because I I, I had started out as a screenplay writer mm-hmm. uh, and had one one little indie screenplay called Finding North Made, but no big success at all. But you know, just like everybody, oh here I have a screenplay in my trunk, and I had taken a lot of screenplay writing courses and read all the books. And um, one of the big ones I read, uh, one of the kind of screenwriting gurus of the 80s, was this man named Robert McKee. Mm -hmm. And he had sort of identified the screenplay structure that reduced a screenplay to three acts, just like the three acts of a play. And so within that, there were maybe three or four big turning points, like, you know, the end of Act One and leaving it on a big suspenseful note, the middle of Act Two, which was a long, you know, 60-page Act Two, and then sort of a resolution. So I would always sort of go into whatever my, my writing project is, knowing those three or four big moments, but not really, you know, I, I would sort of know how to get from A to F, say, mm-hmm. but not from A to B. And uh, one of the things that intrigued me, this book, Dig Two Graves, actually started life as a screenplay. Oh, really? And this was back in the years when I was writing those and, you know, trying to, to make it big in Hollywood. 
Um, and I had just seen the Brad Pitt movie Seven, mm-hmm. if you remember, which is you know very much about the seven deadly sins. And I thought that is that is such a gift to a writer because there is an immediate piece of architecture there. Mm-hmm. You know, the seven deadly sins, and I literally was casting about. You know, what is an equivalent that would sort of give me these stepping stones? And the first thing I hit upon was actually the decathlon in the Olympics, 10 10 different events. And maybe it was right around the time of the Summer Olympics. I don't really remember. But the 12 labors actually came not too much later, but just like a day or two later. So I was actually looking for something that had kind of a built-in structure to it. And that's what sort of, you know, kept me going. That's, you know, those were, that was my yellow brick road to get to the end of the book, pretty much, those 12 labors. Now, when, when you were talking about Robert McKee and, and his, right. his book, were you, are you talking about the book Story? Yes, absolutely. I am yeah. super impressed that you were able to condense that down <laughs> in, into like oh, no. a minute. <laughs> I have so much trouble. I, I just, I work through that book continually because it's just like mining for gold. There's so much great information in there. Oh, yeah. But wow, it's, it's tough. Really, the, the second thing that just besides a structure that really, you know, and, and I read his and many others mm-hmm. that really paid off in terms of of writing this book about mythology is all these sort of archetypal characters, mm-hmm. you know, the hero, the villain, the jester or the fool, the helper, you know, all these things, when you reduce any story to its sort of basic elements, you know, um, he, he would say, or other writers would say, every great story has all of those characters in it. Now, now I've never done anything quite as explicit as really, you know, mapped that through my stuff. But that also gives you these great, you know, stepping stones for a, a good story, I think, you know. Well, one of the elements that you have in this book that, that really stood out to me, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to stand out to everyone that reads the book, is the relationship between the father and the daughter. It, it just yeah. was extraordinary. And, and when I was doing a little bit of research for this, uh, for the interview, I, I learned, to my surprise, that you don't have a daughter. I don't. Uh, I, have, uh, I have raised four dogs, which is about <laughs> as close to that as I could come. Um, and I am, uh, I'm not a father. I've never had, had children mm-hmm. in, in or out of marriage other than these dogs. But, um, and I've never, bizarrely, and, you know, I don't know if this is a, a good confession or not, I've never really wanted children. I've mm-hmm. never really, you know, liked, you know, little babies or anything like that. But I didn't realize when I was starting out writing this book, that that would become almost the central heartbeat of this thing. Yes. And as you've said, it is something so many readers have already glommed onto. And it actually made me think I would actually be a pretty good father, I think. And the the special thing in this is that it's a father who's having to raise his daughter without a rule book. Mm-hmm. You know, unexpectedly, as happened in so many families, uh, the mother died unexpectedly. He's having to sort of make it up as, as he goes along, uh, you know, be father to her, be breadwinner to her. Um, he has to deal not with raising her single-handedly, but with all the teenage angst that teenage girls go through anyway, which is a whole other kind of uh, set of material. And I really got into it. And um, I realized it's so strange because, you know, you think, oh, I know everything I'm, I'm doing writing this book. I realized only after I had finished it that 
almost subconsciously, um, it had somewhat paralleled my own family life. My mother had died when I was eight years old, Mm -hmm. and my father had to raise, uh, for a period of time, uh, me and my twin brother by himself. And I was a kind of a bratty kid. I never gave him much credit for it or never really thought about the sacrifices he was making doing that. And I realized as I was really getting into this that I was really thinking a lot about my father and what he had gone through. I mean, you know, they, they say about writers, write what you know. Mm-hmm. And this is such a kind of fantastical made-up story. But only later did I realize I really was tapping into these very deep-rooted emotional things um, you know, that that had been part of my childhood. And that is actually one of the things uh, at the end of the book that I would really, I feel like I haven't even begun to tap is this relationship between Ethan, the father, and Skip, his daughter. And I have so much more to to kind of explore and write about in their relationship. I mean, that's one of the things that would make me go, and go back to, uh, to do another book in the series, maybe, I think. And I, I think that would be a, a lot of fun to do that. When I, when I first started reading the book, I, I very quickly sort of glommed on to the idea of these two characters, the father yeah. and the daughter, and I really like them. And fr- from early on, it, I, I thought to myself, this is such an extraordinary circumstance that there's no way to turn this into a series. But by the end, uh, I, I began to see ways that it could be done. So I'm, I'm glad oh, yeah. to hear that you're considering doing that. Well, and there's also the, um, you know, I, I had, I don't know if you remember um, that great series, uh, English TV mystery series, Inspector Morse. Yes. Mm-hmm. That was on PBS, I mean, based on the Colin Dexter novels, and it was on Masterpiece Mystery for many, many years. And I'd always loved those. I'd always loved um, these mysteries that were in an academic setting uh, based on, you know, bits of mythology or these kind of little arcane pieces of trivia. And uh, so even though our Ethan isn't, it's not a police procedural, he's not a, he's not a cop, he's not a detective, he has these sort of mystery-solving skills the way um, the Dan Brown character, um, oh, his name slips my slips on my mind, but in, you know, uh, the Da Vinci Code right. and a- mm-hmm. Angels and Demons, um, and has a coterie of people helping him. This very precocious 12-year-old daughter, there's a black woman detective named Aretha Mizell, who I love as a character, you know, this very sort of sassy woman who gives us, you know, our, our entree to the police department. Mm-hmm. There's even this sort of uh, neurotic, messed up grad school uh, teaching assistant that could, you know, help in a pinch in solving these mysteries. So I definitely have a cast of characters to, uh, to go into a few more books with. It's interesting to hear you describe the characters and everything, and it, it almost goes back to Robert McKee's book and, and the archetypes and uh, all of that. It, it's clear that you have been a writer for a long time. It's, it, what's interesting to me is what you have written. You've written for television. We mentioned that earlier. You've written screenplays. Right. Um, you've written memoir. You've written historical fiction. And then all of a sudden, you're writing this. this about it is completely different than, than the other things that you've written. So why the abrupt right turn? Well, the, the, the most honest answer, and, and 
it's you know we'll, we haven't seen if it will pay off yet is to to try and make some money. <laughs> I thought let me try and write a commercial book for once. <laughs> and by no means do I diminish the the you know what I think is the beauty and artistry of my my first two books, the history of swimming and Capote in Kansas. And both of those are inherently mysteries. Mm-hmm. You know they're suspenseful. You know there's a mystery in both of them that keeps you turning the pages. And in the the history of swimming that that had to do with the your brother went missing and I, I haven't read it so I can't I, speak to it but I, I was just in doing the research that's I found that fascinating yeah I mean it's a it's a real life story about this three-day period when my twin brother who I was obsessively close to uh, disappeared and many things had happened right before that that made me think he'd maybe killed himself or had been murdered or something like that. And it was this very sort of crazy wild goose chase I went on to try and find him. So, you know, that starts with the question, where is my twin brother? Mm-hmm. You know, the Capote and Kansas novel is really about the relationship between Truman Capote and Harper Lee and who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird and why did their friendship dissolve? So that's, you know, it starts with a question and sort of answers it by the end of the book. And I've always like been this sort of, um, you know, my guilty pleasure has always been reading mysteries. You know, from the time I started with, you know, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys mm-hmm. when I was a kid through, you know, any number of, of uh, current mystery series, I really love them. And they're very relaxing to me. And I love really intricate, you know, complex ones. And I thought, well, you know, since I'm really doing that so inherently in all the writing I do, why not just call it what it is? You know, try and, you know, jump into something that, you know, is a very specific, you know, genre and, and do a mystery. Um, and then there was like a lot of, um, you know, gnashing of teeth, like, what is it? Is it, is it a mystery? Is it a novel of suspense? Is it mm-hmm. a thriller? And each one of those words kind of had a different definition and each one of them, you know, maybe met, meant something different in the marketplace. And I think this is a little bit of a, a hybrid of all of those. Um, I, I would agree. I love, and, and what, what does your publisher say? What, what, what did they tell I, you it is? <laughs> Well, I think we ended up calling it a thriller, mm-hmm. and my uh, my very wise uh, publisher, a man named Ben Leroy, who runs uh, Tyrus Books, I once asked him, well, what is the difference between a mystery and a thriller? He said, well, a mystery usually begins with a dead body, mm-hmm. you know, er- early on, within the first few pages. A thriller is more about a, a person's existential search, you know, to to some kind of, you know, high and mighty, like, why is this happening? And this very much has both of them, I think. Dig two graves within, you know, I'm not giving any secrets away. Within 30 pages, you know, his daughter has gone missing. You certainly hope she's not a, a, a dead body, but it really is his search, like, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to our family? Who is on the other end of these bizarre ransom demands that seems to know so much about me? So it really does have that kind of existential thing, as well as, you know, hopefully something that keeps you, you know, whip, whipping through the pages to find out what happens next. Yeah, I, I find that as a reader myself, that my favorite books in the thriller genre are the ones like yours, where it's that page-turning, propulsive uh, need to to keep going, to find out what's going, and the mystery. 
Um, So it's like there's a character in deep trouble and he or she is doing everything in their power to get out of this trouble, which just gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, but they're yeah. also trying to solve the mystery, and and I'm and I'm not a big fan of violence either in movies or books. I mean, I read it occasionally, but it's not not something that represents my worldview. So that was a kind of a tough path to navigate. Mm-hmm. You know, how to have some menace in this and a real sense of threat that something could happen to this to this uh, young girl and and later on an, another woman. But without going over the over the board into gore or any you know slasher fiction or anything like that, and I I think I got it I think I got it right. I I would say that you did, Kim. Uh, where can where can listeners find Dig Two Graves? Uh, it is available in all bookstores. Uh, you know your favorite uh, indie bookstore in your town. You can order it through Amazon or IndieBound or Powell's. Um, and it's uh, an interesting thing the publisher has done. It is available in three different formats from the get-go, both as a hardcover, a paperback, and as an e-book. If you oh, really? if you download and read, yeah, that is interesting. So whatever fits your your lifestyle the best, you can get it. Okay, and what's the best place for listeners to find you online? Um, I, at my website which is called kimpowersbooks.com. And I love, uh, I love visiting with you know, my readers. A lot of them have become really good friends since then. And you can keep up to date with all I'm doing on this book and read a little bit about my other books. And I do some blog essays and all of that. So it's uh, one-stop shopping, kimpowersbooks.com. Okay, and I will link to that in the show notes. Kim, I really enjoyed your book, and it was an absolute delight chatting with you today. Stephen, thank you so much. What a pleasure. This is Stephen Campbell for CrimeFiction.fm. You can find us on iTunes and on the web at www.CrimeFiction.fm. If you do pop by the website, please sign up for the email list. I send out an email each Friday with a summary of the week's interviews. It's the best way to keep up with what we're doing and to be sure you don't miss out on great new books like Dig Two Graves from Kim Powers. Thanks for listening.